Wherever you are in the world, thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Badminton Podcast, a community for badminton players by badminton players proudly brought to you by Valan. We talk all things badminton and aim to inspire you to be better in your game and in life by celebrating the people and stories of our global badminton community, whether they be past or present professional players, social players, officials or fans. We're your hosts, Jeff and Henry, and we love badminton. From the bottom of our hearts, we'd just like to say thank you to everyone who has listened to, shared and been part of the podcast. It wouldn't be possible without you all. If you do enjoy our episodes and can spare just a couple of dollars each month, you can really help keep the podcast going by supporting us on Patreon. Just visit www.patreon.com slash Podcast. We'll leave the link in the description. The Badminton Podcast is brought to you by Volant. Henry and I founded Volant out of our own frustration with the confusing, bright and unsightly clothes we saw in badminton all over the world. But now it's so much bigger than that. Our mission is to simplify the badminton journey and show the world how incredible badminton is. So make sure you check out our badminton basics at volantwear.com and follow us on our socials at volantwear. Alrighty, badminton community, are you ready for part two with Martin Van Durmelen? It's so hard to say your last name. Sorry, Martin, I really botched that one. I didn't practice, I need to practice. But anyway, let me try that again. Martin Van Durmelen. We'll let Martin correct me when he speaks later. My philosophy is that sport and badminton is contributing a lot to the development of a person and that development is not finishing when your sports career is over you take that with you for the rest of your life so for me using sport using badminton is a tool for you as a coach to help the development of the personality not to become of course it would be nice if you become the olympic champion but become a person, a social person in the rest of your life with interests for your society, for your other people, for friends, family. And I think uh, sport and especially badminton can be a very, very great tool to achieve that. If you didn't hear last week's episode, be sure to listen to that first one because this is a continuation of our chat with him. We've discussed his badminton story, what it takes and how long it's needed to create world-class players and heaps of other things as well, like the myth of lactic acid buildup. So make sure you check it out. Now, the last thing that we spoke about was the structures that are important in a national badminton organization. And our next topic is about funding. So I guess funding is always one of the big issues federations face if badminton isn't a very popular sport in their country. What is your opinion about the importance of money when trying to implement these kinds of systems that we talked about in the last episode, Martin? Yeah, of course, funding is, is vital in every program. That's, that's logical, I think. But I think a lot of people are making the mistake that they 
they tell always their government or their national committee or sponsors, they, they tell them, give me the money and I will take care of this and this and this. But that's not how it works. What I experienced is that people want to see first the results and then they will come up with money. So if you show to parties, organizations who are willing to spend money on badminton that you are seriously working, that you are gradually coming to results, that results are becoming better because you and your players are working very, very hard, your organization is very hard, then immediately you have another position where you discuss with your National Olympic Committee or with a government or with a potential sponsor. Another position to say, hey, wait a moment, if you could support us, then we could even do this more and more and more. Then you show people that you are very serious. Second thing what I always see is that a lot of people, they say, okay, I need uh, 500,000 US or 1 million or something like that. And what I always did, I was never over asking. So when, when I was asking for help, for support, by the way, I was never asking for money. I was always asking for support. This is what we are doing. This is what we achieved till now. This is what we want to achieve. This is how we want to achieve that. And then my question was always, how can you support us? Because to give an example, when I moved the national team in practice to the National Sports Center, the National Olympic Committee, who was, is in charge of the National Sports Center, they did not charge me to pay for courts over there. I asked them, can you support me? And they didn't come up with, with money, but they gave the courts for free. That's also a possibility. So in that way, yeah, I could achieve quite substantial amounts of money during the years that, that I was in charge. Another very important part, I think, is media attention. In many, many countries, badminton is not the most favorite sport, and uh, you've got soccer or baseball or basketball or whatever, and then you go down the line and then somewhere is badminton. What I tried to do was, now you've got social media, but in those days you had, but in England was CFAX, eh? Uh, you know what it is on, on television? Uh, the uh, just uh, news pages. Bring it up on your television screen. And every sport, and also in the Netherlands, had one page. And we tried to renew that page every day so that every day there was something new on that page. Another thing what I did was when I went to tournaments, I had always a big list of email addresses of all newspapers, radio, television stations. It was a list of 80 people, maybe 90, I don't know, I don't remember. But after every day in a tournament, I wrote down a couple of lines with the results of the Dutch players and my contact number, and I just sent it away. In the beginning, nothing at all, nothing at all. And then suddenly, newspapers are having uh, some space free and they say, oh, wait a moment, I've got some easy piece over here. I've got the results of the uh, Norwegian International. So the results of the Norwegian International with, with the Dutch players were in. And when we were 
after one year, and just by sending mails, 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 suddenly we got more interviews, more attention. So players got the interviews. Players were more interested for small sponsors. NOC was also, hey, wait a moment, something is happening over there. So just by, let's say, gradually step by step pushing um, media, we also got more and more attention. And that helps. And of course, it helps when the results are becoming better. If you have to send every tournament, uh, you know, we lost in the first round. Yeah. Okay, it's not helping that way. But if you are losing in the first round of every tournament, I don't think you need uh, support or extra money. So that's what we did. And in that way, we, we could build up a very good relationship with sponsorship and with our, let's say, government's National Olympic Committee, who is uh, subsidizing sport in the Netherlands. Yeah, it really sounds like you were able to create something. So maybe you didn't have that much from the start, but then you weren't, you were doing all the little things to try to get more awareness or get the support rather than just searching for the money. Because I guess from from a lot of people's perspectives, they always look at it at, say, the chicken and the egg, right? So some people say, we need results to get money, but then how do we get results without money? And then that kind of battle comes together. And what happens is we blame the other thing. Exactly. But that's also, of course, it's the chicken and the egg. But you know that it's just one way. With no money or a little bit money, you have to produce results. So what can you do with a little bit of money? How can you get your players better? What can they do by themselves? They don't have practice facilities. What can they do outside? But just show everybody that, that you're eager get better results and if you have that let's say that positive attitude among players and also among a small group of coaches who are working with those players then it will start to grow it will start to grow and of course you need somebody that was really uh, taking the lead in this say okay this is what we are going to do we can do this okay we don't have a court then we go outside for running and we do this and this and this and whatever never give up just go 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 and then you will see that a lot of people they they like that kind of attitude and they want to join that attitude because it's it's a positive attitude not only for your own personal life but also for the people around you and i think that's that's really important and that's the way i think you have to start yeah it's definitely it sounds like it's the right mindset to have, I guess, even regardless of whether you have a lot of monetary support or not. It's that resourcefulness that you, Martin, that you're demonstrating and showing that you had at the time rather than the resources is being able to be resourceful and asking for that support, being eager and trying to drive attention and awareness to what you are doing and the results that you are achieving. And of course, at some point, you need to have have those results or have that progress so that you can go back and and ask for more support. Now, you talked about you know what you had done as part of your journey, and you talked about the players you know getting their results. Was there anything in terms of the players themselves that helped that cycle or helped that journey to getting more support but beyond the results? Yeah, of course, of course. When I started as a coach, those players. First of all, they wanted to go on the same track as I was willing to go. I saw that we had potential, especially with the girls in those days. 
and they were willing to do that and to spend their time on that and trying to find a small sponsorship in their own social community to to spend that money not on having a better a better apartment but spend it on taking part in tournaments getting better practice facilities and things like that that's i think one of the the important things and the other i think what i think was important is that the fact that they were not only working for their own personal interests because they saw that if as a group we could achieve better results the benefits will came to the individual members of the group as well my first target when i became the national coach in the netherlands was to get promotion in the european championships from the b to the a group the netherlands was not in the uh, in the, the highest group so players were aware of this and they were working for it and they are working together to get that promotion done then the second part was try to to qualify for the Thomas Huber Cup finals. And, and already in the, in the second attempt, and in those days it was just eight countries in the world who would be in the, in the finals. And also in the second attempt with the girls, we were there. And they knew that if they were helping each other in practice, all of them became better. So they could achieve that well, for the first time the Netherlands qualified for the Huber Cup finals. And immediately, immediately, a couple of months later, the federation got a small sponsorship and we had, I think, at least 100,000 guilders in those days. It was not euros, but guilders. We could spend that on the program of the players. But they were working together to achieve that. I think that's also very important. Of course, badminton is an, is an individual sport. But if you, um, where is your government interested in? Your government is interested in the name of your country. So. Probably they are not interested in Jeff Toe winning the, the Indonesian Open, but they are more interested in Australia winning the Sudiman Cup. So in that way, yeah, you can work also a little bit, or you need to work also with your group and with team results and team targets. And in fact, then it's most of the time, it's also more easier to get those targets reached because with just some clever thinking, especially in team events, with some clever thinking as a coach, you can change uh, doubles and double combination. And yeah, that also helps, of course. Yep, 100%. So if you're looking at, say, the, the monetary amounts, now some of the listeners might not understand how much it costs to run a high-performance program or, or a national program. So from a, just a general monetary amount, how much would you say is an average cost that it would take to really build a really good national program? Of course, it's going to be different from country to country, but someone might think, yeah, how much is it? 500,000, a million, 2 million? Like, what does it actually take? I know in the last years I was in charge, but Netherlands is a small country. It's easy to organize. We had just a small group of players. Everything included, 1.1 million. So, salaries of coaches included, what we did in those days was players were not paying for the tournaments. We always paid for travel. We paid for the hotels. And they only need to pay for lunch and dinner by themselves in the seniors. And in juniors, we uh, paid everything. Okay, so there, was that Euros, Martin? Yeah, it was Euros. Yeah, 1.5. Okay, so for those listening in 
at least Australia. I know there's probably other people listening around the world of this episode, 1.7 million roughly Australian. And in terms of US, I would I'd guess, you know, 1.4 if I'm doing my calculation somewhat right in my head. Um, so that gives everyone a bit of an idea. Obviously, Netherlands is, yeah, at the time would have been a smaller, smaller group. So you have to sort of tailor that amount to your individual country as well and not just use that as a yardstick. So it is uh, still quite a significant sum, nonetheless. Including junior development there as well, of course. And you know, one of the, uh, the easiest things in, for us in the Netherlands, of course, we've got within, let's say, a couple of hours drive, we are in Germany, we are in Denmark, we are in France, we can play in a very easy way, quite good tournaments. So the, the program uh, is, is quite easy to make. And if you are living in yeah, in Australia, you could do something, of course, with, with different states in Australia itself. But you also want to have that international uh, exchange, of course, because that's what you need. It could be a little bit uh, more expensive, but then you have to look at some other possibilities. Eh? If you go outside with your senior team, for us, it was very easy. We go to the All England, then we travel back. Next week, we go to the Swiss, uh, Swiss Open. In between, we were at home. But if you are planning something with, with Australia, for instance, I would say, okay, if we need to play the, uh, the All England, we go for a trip of two months and we are looking for practice facilities uh, somewhere in France or in Germany or in the Netherlands or Denmark or whatever. And from there, from that base, we start to cover Europe, something like that. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. that's maybe a possibility I would at least I would look for. Yeah, it was, a, I guess, a geographical opportunity that you could tap into at the time as well. Now, not to play the chicken and the egg game, but I'm going to play the chicken and the egg game because, Martin, you did mention 1.1 million euros was where the program had ended up. How about when you first started? In terms of funding, like, obviously... When you started, it was more about that resourcefulness. It was all about creating that awareness and delivering those results from a funding perspective. Sort of, can you give us a rough idea of what that looked like when you first started? In euros? Uh, euros, and then we can sort of do a rough estimate. Oh, yeah, I can tell you that. In euros, it was uh, 45,000. Wow. Wow. 45,000 and then 1.1 million. Yeah. It's amazing. No, it's no, it, no, 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 no. It's, it's 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 not amazing. You know, when you have forty-five thousand, then you cannot uh, organize practice every day, and you cannot go to twelve to fifteen tournaments uh, with all the players in your team and whatever. That's not possible. But what can you do? At least you can say, okay, I want them at least once every week. I want to have them together. That's one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Secondly, then you must try to get some control about what players are doing outside on a week. So try to influence what people are doing in their clubs. So I spent in the first couple of years, first two years, I spent a lot of time going to clubs, talking to coaches over there, and try to convince them how to practice, try to convince coaches together with players what they needed to to practice. With some, we could succeed. With some not. And then um, maybe it's luck. I don't know whether this is luck, but the ones who are more working, where I could work more together with coaches of the club and with the players, they 
gradually had better results. So almost all the clubs, after one and a half, two years, they say, hey, wait a moment, we have to join a little bit because it gives us also better possibilities. It's about communication. It's about commitment. It's about not giving up. And then you automatically, uh, let's say, uh, it's uh, maybe not the right expression, but then you earn money back to make your program stronger. Mm. But first you need to invest maybe not in funding, but in commitment, in labor-intensive work. That's it. No secrets at all. (laughs) Just hard work is the secret, which is the secret source, which is not always the easiest thing to do, but it's not the most, it's not like it's it's rocket science. It's just doing those extra things, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. And... um, I remember when, okay, I had a full-time job, so that's normally it's from Monday to Friday. But on Saturday and Sunday, then the league matches are going on. And okay, so on Saturday, I was in a league match in The Hague, and on Sunday, I was in a league match in Arnhem. Just, I want to be there. I want to see the people. I want to speak to the people. Mm. Yeah. They have to see that I'm interested in what they are doing. Okay. Yeah, that's really great though, the amount that you grew that that program and obviously you've had such a huge impact on badminton in the Netherlands. So Martin, we're going to move move away now from the funding part. We're going to go into a little bit more of the coaching part of it because um, there was definitely some some coaches out there who are listening to this podcast. So in terms of like the coaching and training environment that you've created or you were able to create, how do you actually create a good environment? You did touch on the players or the athletes being aware that if they get better together, they'll achieve a lot more than if they go individually. But what do you feel is really important to create a really good training environment? But I think what is, is important that, um, that you as, uh, as, as say the head coach or the national coach, whatever, that you are giving the standard. And for instance, when your practice is starting at uh, eight o'clock in the morning, I will be there 7.30. I am the first one in the hall. Nobody, no player can say to me, you were late. And if I'm not late, then why should the player be late? Because you have to be there, you have to travel from home, a traffic jammer. Yeah, we had that, okay? So, but I also had traffic jam. So I left home six o'clock in the morning just to be in time. So, and that's an example of giving the standard, this is how we do it. Second thing is that that you always try to communicate uh, as good as possible with your players. So if you're making your program, don't, uh, you make an individual program, of course, for every player, but if you make a week schedule, then all the players have an insight in that week schedule. So when they came in the hall, they knew that I have to do on Monday this, on Tuesday that, but they also knew I'm working on Monday with this group of players and on Tuesday with that coach and on Wednesday I do that. And that player is not coming because he has exams and that player is going to the Finnish International and and things like that. So it was very clear to everybody, or at least it could be clear for everybody, what they were doing, what others were doing, and why they were doing that. And I think that part of uh, communication helped a lot get uh, the right uh, training attitude. I also, and I also always said uh, to the players, yes, there are rules. 
right, when you come to the national team practice. But there is not one set of rules. If you have 20 players, there are 20 sets of rules. Because what's a rule for one, it's not a rule for the other one. If I know, for instance, that somebody needs a lot of hard practice to get a peak performance, then I force that player to do that. But if I also have a player who is more happy and can better perform with a little bit more rest, I'm not that hard on that player. Also, when he or she is skipping some part of the train, okay, oh, that's always a little bit discussion. Why do I need to practice hard? And he is not practicing hard. And hey, wait a moment. You're not the same, eh? What I think is good for you, not good for him. And I always made that difference. And it was many cases I had a lot of discussions with players. But let's say when they were used to it and were a little bit more experienced in the group, and then we are talking about uh, national team players, senior players, then they, they started to understand. And then you come to, then you also come to the, to the time where when you're working with a group of players, in a, in, for instance, in a team, that the team is just the team of players in making the team composition again, play another team. The players are just as important as the opinion of you as a coach because they are also growing. They are growing as a personality. And I think that that's one of the things uh, as a coach you need to achieve and to recognize and to make difference as well. There was always a little bit fight. Younger ones came in and uh, they want to have exactly the same rights as the older ones. Hey, no way. <laughs> you first need to earn your place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Show me the money. That's what they say. <laughs> Show me the money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all that they need to earn their stripes first, right? Yeah, I really like that, Martin, that initially you set the standard and you were very specific about the, the types of this type of schedule that you would set for them, who they'd be working with and what they'd be doing and, and what everyone else would be doing. And I really like that you talked about taking an individual approach to these players. Now, I'm not a coach. I haven't, I've certainly been coached before, but I haven't been in the position of a coach. But I've certainly seen there are sort of teams, not necessarily badminton, but sports players and coaches and some of the cultures that I've seen isn't entirely optimal, as you have described. Creating that culture and setting the standard at the top is so important. But when you have come across cultures that maybe aren't exactly where you want them to be, or they aren't as optimized as you have described it, or high-performing as you have described it, how do you go about breaking that culture? Is it really just about who's on top as in the head coach, the, the one that's you know, giving the training? Or is there something else that needs to be done to essentially crack that code and get them into that high-performing nature? Yeah, but I think it's culture-based. Huh? What I was doing in the Netherlands, I think you can't do that in Korea, for instance. The culture in Korea is the one who is the oldest one, you have to pay respect. That's the way the society works, and that's also the way their, their sport is working. At least that's what I experienced. So over there, it's the coach is an older person, so the coach says to the players, you have to go right now. And none of the players will say, hey, wait a moment, I would like to go left. 
because that's not in the culture. And I don't think it's good to break that code because it's it would be a culture shock completely. People will not be used to that. But I hope that Korea badminton and Korea coaches are also, I'm almost certain that they see that, that they know, as I know how the, the Korean culture is, probably they know how the, the European culture is. And I hope they will try to at least look at it and say, hey, wait a moment, I can use this part of the European culture in my coaching approach. On the other hand, we in Europe, we have to do exactly the same. Eh? Sometimes there is a situation where you cannot say, hey, wait a moment, guys, come together right now. We are going to discuss this and uh, then we are going to vote. And most votes, that's what we are going to do. Now, sometimes the situation is in that way that you say, hey, wait a moment, sit here. This is what we're going to do. You do that, you do that. Very autocratic. And that's it. So it's it's really culture-based, I think. What, what about, Martin, say, so maybe not culture according to, say, background, but more culture of a team itself. So let's just say a national team or a state team or whatever team, the culture of it is that that you just come at any time. It doesn't matter if you're late. It doesn't matter if you feed badly. It, it's kind of like there's not that standard that you're setting there. And then let's just say a coach wants to go and change that the, the culture within the team, change the mindset and the expectations of the players. You have to be here half an hour early. You have to be ready at this time. You have to do this, this, and this. Have you experienced that yourself having to break kind of those bad habits and then getting the pushback from the players? So maybe the best player doesn't want to do it. And then what do you do because they're your best player? Do you let them go or do you try to mold them in the right direction? Like, what are these, like some of these challenges that can happen like this? Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, in fact, I can, I can give an example of Australia. Where was it? It's uh, not me, is it? And <laughs> 12 years ago. I went for, um, I was asked to come to Australia to have an inside look in what they were doing and how they were doing this uh, thing in high performance. And they were practicing in Melbourne. And they were practicing with, I think it was a Taiwanese coach. So... I went in and I was very, very surprised because one side of the hall, male players were sitting and on the other side of the hall, the female players were sitting. So I, I asked the, the coach, I said, why is it? And he didn't know. So I asked the players and some of them said, well, I don't know. And some of them said, yeah, but we don't want to practice with them. But I think it was 10 days over there, something like that. And... So gradually we were discussing how we could change the setup of uh, high performance. And then one of the last days I was there, I went to the practice and then players were sitting there again, but the coach didn't show up because he had to go to the hospital because he was sick or whatever. So yeah, I was there. I said, okay, I can take over the practice. No problem at all. The first thing I did, I said, okay, you sit over here, you sit over there. So I mixed everybody. And then I put them on court. Uh, I think it was something with two against one, in a, an easy exercise, two against one. But I had on every court at least two girls, one boy, or two boys, one girl. So they were forced to practice together. And after that practice, I, uh, I was talking to them and said, hey, well, this is what I feel and what I think, but but you should change because if 
you were one of the best players was practicing against uh, two girls. Uh, was it bad? No, it was not bad at all. So why can't you cooperate? Oh, it was something what they did already many, many years. They were separated in separate practice. So I could break that already within, let's say, one practice. And I think that's, that's important. That's really important. Yeah, it's almost like they were a team that lacked a team mentality because they've separated themselves by gender, when in reality, they're still a team, yeah. but they weren't behaving in that way. So the way that you approach that to essentially break that or shift the way that they were thinking is kind of, yeah, a, a really great way to approach something like that. I also can give you another example. I was in, uh, let's say, not uh, the most developed countries in uh, in South America where badminton is played uh, just, let's say, by the, the few top-level ones in society. And there was also, in some parts, uh, uh, let's say the, the lower social classes, they were practicing as well with young kids because that was the only thing they had, those kids. They were really, really enthusiastic and really hard work. So I invited them to the national practice. That was a shock. It was a complete shock. And especially when those young, low-class, social-class players were beating the upper-class players. Whew. That would, that would be embarrassing. <laughs> no, it's not embarrassing, but it's opening the eyes of people. Changing their perspective. It seems like you have a bit of a history of, of disrupting their behaviors or, or the teams or their perspectives in, in your career, Martin. So continuing on with that track, in terms of your own beliefs and your own perspectives, especially around coaching, how has that actually changed over the last 20 or so years? You know, when I started as a coach, I always had the idea that I had to read the game. And uh, when there was uh, an interval, that I really give the key to the win. But what I learned, that's not the most important part of coaching. The most important part of coaching is that when you are, uh, nowadays you can sit behind the coach, that you encourage your players always, that you support them. And of course, they have to go on court with the right mindset and the right setup. Okay, this is what I'm going to do. But they also have to go on court with a mindset and with a plan. If this is not working, I'm going to do that. That's what you need to learn players before they go on court. That's what you do with them in practice. So if they go on court, most important thing for me, how I changed is that I try to learn the players to think for themselves. And yes, of course, in stressful situations, in the final of the Olympics or in the final of the, the European Championships, that's stressful or when there's quite a lot of money in, in the stake, uh, semi-final or England or whatever. Yes, then sometimes uh, those players, they need not only your encouragement and your support, but they also need just to be reminded, hey, you need to do that. You need to do that. And I think I changed, I, that's where I changed a lot. So I guess going from kind of that being the answer, having always the right answer, always having the rabbit to pull out of the hat that's going to get you the win. I'm um, going from that mindset to more of an encouraging, practicing the situations in, in, in training, in practice, so that when they get on court, they can think for themselves and you can remind them when, when they can't or when they're struggling with their thinking. 
in those really stressful situations, eh? not now with COVID, but if you play the uh, in the Olympic final, for instance, there's a lot of spectators on, are shouting and, and applauding and things like that. And then you are sitting in the back. Uh, I remember sitting in the back in the Malaysian Open and was so proud that you could shout whatever you want. They never hear you. They never hear you. Then I said, hey, wait a moment. I have to learn them to think for themselves. But then when they are playing there, and if, they, if it's difficult, they need some support, some encouragement. Then they have that familiar face behind the court. Say, okay, you're doing well. Okay. Yeah. That brings me back to one of, the, one of our other episodes, Martin, that we, we spoke to a couple of English players Greg Mayers and Jenny Moore, and they spoke about how Andy Wood, I'm sure you know Andy Wood, Martin, from, from yeah, England. Yeah, I know him, yeah. And how his coaching is a little bit different. It reminds me a little bit of that because I feel that what they were saying is that as a coach, a lot of the time you go out in the mid-game interval or between the sets and you're always trying to offer tactics. Tactics, do this, hit more here, do this less, do this more in tactics. But then um, they were saying how Andy is a lot more about, hey, how are you feeling? What can I do to help you feel more comfortable so that you can play better? Not, hey, you have to hit to this corner always or careful of the cross smash. So do you feel that you've also gone into a little bit of that where you're more in that encouraging, but also not only tactics, but more, okay, how can I support not from only a tactical basis, but from a well-being and, and confidence basis that you've got their back basically? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We know that in, in those difficult situations, what can people, uh, what do they hear in, the, in that 90 minutes, 90 seconds break? They hear almost nothing. What I see is that a lot of coaching are, are talking and talking and talking and uh, you have to do this and that and run like this and that. Uh, hey, wait a moment. Calm down. First, listen to what your player has to say and try to react on that. Awesome. Very insightful, Martin. Now, we've talked a bit about your coaching. We've talked a lot about your story, about what organizational structure works, about funding. We want to finish up with coaching as well, just because you have so much experience in coaching. And it would be great if you could share your wisdom one final time for our listeners. So with all of your coaching success, just to wrap up here, in one sentence, what is your job as a coach? The main job for you as a coach is to develop the personality of players to be a social human. To be a social human. I know that we said one sentence, but I'm going to ask you just to elaborate a little bit more on that. My philosophy is that sport and badminton is contributing a lot to the development of a person. And that development is not finishing when your sports career is over. You take that with you for the rest of your life. So for me, using sport, using badminton, is a tool for you as a coach to help the development of the personality. Not to become, of course, it would be nice if you become the Olympic champion, but become a person, a social person in the rest of your life with interests for your society, for your other people, for friends, family, whatever. And I think uh, sport and especially badminton can be a very, very 
great tool which you said. Yeah, so it's in a sense not social as in sociable, you know, going out, having a lot of friends, etc. No, 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 no. But to be of a contribution to society and to, I guess, give back and contribute and give value to society as, as a human is what you're referring to, Martin? That's, that's what I mean. Maybe the word social, uh, my English is not good enough for that. No, that's okay. We'll still keep it as the one sentence. Uh, we do have the explanation after it as well. So our listeners will understand what, what you're meaning. And um, yeah, I think it's very deep, very insightful. Yeah, because I think not, I guess, when you look at those less experienced coaches, and I know I'm speaking for coaches when I don't really know all of them all that well, I would say that that is probably not the same track that they would go down if I asked them the exact same thing. No, but I think that that evolves. You know, when you start as a coach, eh, you want to make players better. You want to go for results. Yes, that's important. And yes, you are very intense working on that and thinking with it and trying to find the best practice and blah, 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 blah. But after several years, you start to, hey, wait a moment, I'm doing this, doing that. How is that contributing to the personality of your players? And especially when you're the generation where you, as a coach, are, you grow up with, with, with players and then they stop playing and they, they go to do something different. And then you see they are successful or not successful in society. And then you start to think, hey, wait a moment. What could I have done to help them to start better in society? Or Yeah, I think, Martin, I think you're absolutely right in that you will not realize this until you've had the, the amount of experience in coaching as you have because you've been able to see people begin, go through their careers, and then finish. And then you can see them five years later when, they, when you see them at a tournament because they're coming to say hi. And then you talk to them and think, oh, wow, this person is, what is this person doing now? And then you see the next batch coming up and you can, you can see the effects of coaching, not only on the court, but you can see it in the careers after. And I think that's, that's what gives your, your answer a lot more depth and wisdom to it is because of all the experiences that you've had over the period of time you've been coaching compared to say someone who's been coaching just for a few years or they're in the same generation and those players are still actually competing. It's a little bit of a different perspective, yep. I think. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, Martin. So we've, <laughs> we've gone and we've spoken for quite a while again, very, very easily. This is part two of the podcast. I don't think that we are part three. There might be another one with Martin in the future anyway, um, because I'm sure we'd love to, to hear from you again, but, as one of our last questions here, Martin, we just wanted to ask you, we are running a bit of a poll in the lead up towards the 2020, well, now it's 2021, but Tokyo Olympic Games. And we've been asking our guests on the podcast to, to give, our, give their predictions for the gold medal winners in men's singles and ladies singles, just those two and just the gold medals. So would you be able to provide us with who you think is going to take the gold? Yeah, easy. Momota. Momota from Japan and Carolina Marine from Spain. Wow. <laughs> that was a very quick, quick, quick response yeah. to both of them. Yeah. It went for the top positions of both of them as well. We actually haven't had a vote for Momota recently. So that's, yeah, that's a really, it's a good one to get Momota back up there. So... Momota is actually currently sitting on nine votes for the men's singles. Victor Axelson coming in second 
with five votes and then Anders Antonsen coming in third with the one vote there. And for the women's singles, with your vote, Martin, Carolina's still number one, so she's nine votes, so she's the same as Momota. Equal second is Taisa Ying and Okuhara. And, yeah, so we've only got three votes for, for both of them, so there haven't been any other votes for ladies singles other than Taisa Ying, Carolina, and Okuhara, and in men's singles, Kento, Anders, and Victor. So this is a pretty consistent across who everyone thinks is going to take the gold medal. But yeah, Henry just commented that we haven't recently after the all England and his perform and Kento's performances there, we haven't had any recent Kento nominations. They came a little bit earlier. Yeah. Let's see. Let's, let's wait. I don't know, but I think those are the favorites. Absolutely. Yeah. I think Jeff and I are pretty aligned on that. I don't, I don't remember who our women's singles prediction was back when we first did our prediction in, two, oh, was it 2019, Jeff? 2000? No, it was oh, early, early 2020. 2020, yeah. I yeah. think I had Tai Ying, I think, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I had Marin either. So we're not we're not aligned with our poll, but but we'll, we'll claim it anyway because it's from the Badminton Podcast. And speaking of the Badminton Podcast, Martin, here at the Badminton Podcast, myself and Jeff, thank you once again for coming on as part two of our episode with you. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. Thank you very much. Thanks for sharing all your wisdom. Thanks, Martin. So from Henry and I at the Badminton Podcast, thanks for tuning in to this episode. If you've enjoyed it or found it useful, be sure to share it with your family, friends, teammates, and someone outside your badminton circle too, because with your help, we can show the world how incredible badminton is. To keep up to date with new episodes and who we're interviewing next, make sure you connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at the Badminton Podcast and on Twitter at The Badminton Pod. Feel free to contact us and ask any questions, give us feedback or request topics for future episodes. We love hearing from you. And remember to check out and shop for your simple and minimalist badminton gear at volantwear.com. Catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.